Howdy folks. Today we're going to be starting 1 Peter chapter 3. This lesson and our next lesson is going to be about a Christian woman who is married to her non-Christian husband. Now don't take it as though that is the only application. We're going to see as we go through this text that there are plenty of things for male and female to consider in relation to our God and people of the world that may perceive the life of a faithful Christian. So we're going to talk about 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 today, and then next week we will plan on, if all goes accordingly, to 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. I want you to imagine what the woman or women that are being addressed in this epistle are facing. Number one, in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, which we have talked about in previous lessons, says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. In this letter, we see these saints being addressed are facing persecution. Later, in chapter 4, comes back in verses 12 and 13, and this letter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So, as we think through this lesson, and we work our minds to make applications to ourselves, be mindful also to whom this was originally written, that these Christian women are married to non-Christians, and at the same time, going through persecution from the world. So they are literally sleeping with the enemy. And not just in the sense of the world is wicked, which is true, 1 John 5, 19, but they're in relation to the darkness that is persecuting them. Can you imagine the mental, the spiritual, the physical sides that these women are going through. And yet, they're going to be reminded that they need to be in subjection to those non-Christian husbands and conduct themselves in such a way as befitting of a Christian. We're going to get into all this in this lesson and the next. Christians should understand some things. If, like I, you, if you are a Christian, have had a sinful past, you're supposed to be someone who has changed in behavior and in thought. Not one or the other, but in both. And Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
So the conduct has changed. The mind has changed. And as we've already talked about in our study of 1 Peter, Christians are supposed to conduct oneself in a good and virtuous manner, or as the word was in 1 Peter 2 and verse 12, an honest manner, insomuch that when people would make an allegation against a faithful child of God, their conduct would outweigh the allegation. 1 Peter 2.12 said, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, and again, just as a reminder, that means good, it means virtuous, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here is what we need to understand if you don't already. Actions speak louder than words. Notice various contexts. In Ezekiel 33, 30 through 33, the Son of Man being addressed here is Ezekiel, not Jesus. He says, Also, thou Son of Man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and the doors of the house. Speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this come to pass, lo, it will come. Then they shall know that a prophet hath been among them. In all the years that I've been teaching, I've experienced this more times than I can count and to this day continue to experience this. Where people put on the right face, they appear to be very interested in the word of God, but when push comes to shove, they're not going to obey. In another context, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Every Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So here, look at false prophets. They appear to be brothers or sisters in Christ. But the appearance is not telling. And it's not even the works here. It's the fruit of those works. For example, you may have a brother or sister that is in name at least who are part of a congregation. And Jude warns when Jude, you know, in verses three and four, one chapter book said, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write in you of the common salvation, it was needful me to write in you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turned the grace of our 
God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what's there specifically in verse 4. The reason you're to contend for the faith is against those that creep in unaware. So what Matthew 7, 15 through 20 is talking about, think about it in this application. Here is somebody that their outward appearance is that they're one of the saints. Their words are that they're one of the saints. And maybe they're very hospitable. And you know, the Bible teaches that Christians are a hospitable people. Romans 12, 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. We're going to talk about that in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, using hospitality one to another without grudging. So these people are very hospitable and they have brothers and sisters into their house and it appears that their works are good. But over time, you find out that they were using hospitality as a means by which to falsely uh, convert those unbeknownst brethren to their way of thinking. It appeared they were doing good works. The fruit reveals otherwise. So that's what it means to you shall know them by the fruit. Here's the unfortunate side of that. You know, once you think about planting a tree, if you're expecting apples to grow on a tree, it may not be years before you get to see what kind of fruit, if any, that tree is going to produce. That's the same case about those that creep in unawares. Unawares, you don't know. You can't see. We can't read the hearts and the minds of people. So know them by their fruit. And another account, uh, another context, Luke 6, 46 Jesus says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? There are people that will confess with their mouth, but their actions indicate otherwise. Titus 1.16, along the same line, though different context, says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. So as we have our lesson today, we want to remember the importance of conduct. And take that to the woman. The Apostle Paul writes the evangelist Titus. And, you know, just to, just to kind of grab this in context, uh, in Titus chapter 1, let me turn to my Bible here. Uh, not Titus chapter 1. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not Titus chapter 1. It's Titus chapter 2, verse 1. There's a 1 in there. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, beginning, but specifically, uh, the women that we're, we're going to be talking about, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read the, the chapter, but verses 3 through 5 are the emphasis of the lesson. But I just want you to see the, the greater context that the principles here just do not teach women. So if you're a man and you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, we're going to be talking about wives. This doesn't apply to me. Like I said before, there's going to be applications for all of us in this lesson. Titus 2, beginning verse 1, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. Did you catch that? 
in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine shown uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of a contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to save you. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So you see what Titus was told to teach, what Titus was told to put in place as sound doctrine with all authority. And when you think about those words, you know, to speak, that's obvious, right? Go and preach it to the people. To exhort is to invite or beseech, to call for, to comfort, desire, uh, etc. When you think about rebuke is to admonish, to convict, to tell a fault. So Paul's covering it with Titus. Go and tell Christians how they're to behave. The grace of God teaches us how to behave. Go and teach that. Go and put that in their minds to be the practice. So that Christians are not supposed to be the do as I say, not as I do type of people. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, what a chapter. If you think Jesus is a softy, read Matthew chapter 23. Verses 1 through 3, Then spake Jesus to the multitude, to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. That ought not be said about Christians. In Romans chapter 2, here's a problem, hypocrisy, verses 17 through 24, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest as well, and approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and the truth and law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through the breaking the law dishonorest thou God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. And the text goes on. We're going to stop it there. Here it is. They professed with their mouth to be God's people. Their conduct says otherwise. They thought they were the teachers when in truth they were practicing hypocrisy. What about our lives? What about your life? As you live it before other people, is it the way of truth or is it the way of error? In Psalm 1930, the psalmist says, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Do you walk in the light and the way of truth or do you walk in darkness? What does the world, what do saints see in you? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, we see, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, 
that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have our conversation in the world and more abundantly to, to you word. Can you say that? Now, if you're a non-Christian, you, you haven't obeyed the Lord yet. Your conduct is disobedience in everything you say and do. If you are a Christian, does your conduct show it? Not your words. You shouldn't have to walk around and say, I am a Christian. Your conduct should show that. So with all of that in mind, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. And likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. The text here starts off with likewise. So we're still talking about submitting to those in authority, whether they're just or unjust, and, and possibly even suffering because of that. That is the context going back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. And we are continuing it now. Likewise ties us backwards. It's, it's saying similarly or equally in the same way. So you look at Jesus equally in the same way. He suffered at the hands of evildoers, yet he did not in any way revile when he was reviled. He didn't threaten when he suffered. Same thing we talked about, about those that are servants to be subject to their masters, that those who endure grief, uh, those that are suffering from the hands of their masters, it, for, for that suffering to be in any way profitable to them as Christians, it needed not be because of their disobedience, but because of their master being unjust. Same way with government authority that we talked about in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Christians are submit themselves to every ordinance of man, and those men, those governments, the whole world life in wickedness. Again, 1 John 5, 19. They're not just. They're unjust. Yet we obey those laws. Now, with all things, even in this lesson today, we will talk about as we go forward, there's one qualifier to that. That is that we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5, verse 29. So whoever it is in a physical authority position over us, from government to, to those that may be employers, present world, masters, uh, for those enslaved, to the wife whose husband is not a Christian, you still obey God over them. But in so much that their instructions do not contradict or make us way in any way be disobedient to God, we're to obey those that have authority over us. When we look at the wife here, like as with the civil authorities, wives are to submit to their own husbands. The word subjection that's used in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 if you were to look it up, it's Strong's number 5293. Uh, it means to be subordinate, to obey. You know, sometimes people just hate that word. Yes, you could read this, likewise, you wives, obey your own husbands. That's what it means, to be obedient, to put under, to be subject to, to be in subjection to, to submit oneself to it's very clear as we study the New Testament what that means. And it's not just the Christian wife to the Christian husband, right? 
That's what 1 Peter 3 is making clear. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. If there's any questions, that answers it. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands in everything. In Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves and your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. There is that great qualifier, right? As it is fit in the Lord. Be careful, ladies, who you marry. If you're out there and you haven't got married yet and you plan on getting to heaven, choose wisely. Whom you choose to couple yourself together with in the flesh can either make getting to heaven easier or harder. We're going to talk about, when we get down later in this context of 1 Peter 3, 7, ye wives dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. We're going to transition a little bit there in context and start talking about husbands and, and by implication, Christian and Christian there, because we're talking about people that can pray. The context will clarify that's not to people of the world. So it's, hey, make sure you marry somebody that's going to help you get to heaven. If you didn't, you still have to obey them. Think about the challenges that that will bring about, especially uh, when it comes to serving the Lord. Even more complicated if you have children. I mean, it's it's tough. And I've known a lot of Christian women that are, are married to non-Christian men, uh, you know, off the top of my head, most of them made that decision without fully thinking it through in their youth or having the, the understanding of the Word of God that they have now. But I can't think of one of those women that hasn't had difficulty obeying God because of that decision. When we look at 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, it is not the wife being married to the Christian. The man here has not obeyed the gospel. Submit to him anyway. This brings up a general principle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul writes, By inspiration, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. That's not in marriage. That's period. Verses 7 through 9 for a man indeed ought not to cover his, his head, for as much as the image and glory of God, the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and the context here is fitting to what we're going to be discussing. 11 through 15 says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. Two points there, not to teach over nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, notwithstanding she should be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, I've met people over the years that say, well, that's talking about the assembly. No, it's not. In the context, verse going back to verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And then verse 9, as the transitions to the woman says, in like manner also. It's not talking about the assembly. It's talking about every 
where. So submission goes back to creation. The woman was made for the man, not the other way around. I know our world has turned this upside down, but the Bible hasn't changed. God hasn't whited out scriptures because of mankind's changes. And it's not that he didn't know it. He knows what is and what was and what is to come. So our Lord was not unaware of what man would do. Remember Isaiah 46 and verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. God knows what is to come. And yet he gave these instructions as written by Paul, as written uh, by Peter, and they are not changing because the times are changing. The reason goes back to the beginning. Now, continuing with our context, that the wife is to be in subject to her own husband, that if any obey not the word, they may be one without the word. So if they're not going to hear the gospel, and, and you know, Christian ought to want to be a soul winner, right? Proverbs eleven thirty, the fruit of the righteousness is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. What, what do we call people that are outside the body, that haven't been converted to Christ, that have sinned? We call them lost. And we do that because that's an accurate depiction. That word is fitting. So if your husband is lost and you are a Christian wife and he's not going to hear the gospel, the way God says you can teach him is how you behave. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 says, Unto the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the Lord. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy." But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or not knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? You hear that? You know, the unbeliever may look at the believer and say, I don't want to be married to you, and may walk away. That doesn't give you a right to remarry. Again, back to verse 10, you remain unmarried. But if they do walk away, you're not gonna, you, don't, you don't have to stop that. However, why would you want them to? Who knows if you could not win them by your conduct? And if you love somebody, I would hope if you're married to somebody, you love them. You want to fight for their soul. This isn't by forcing the word of God down their throats. It's by living it. Be a living sermon. Conduct matters. And it does, especially when it comes to teaching to the evangelist Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. 
Take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. You want to be a light to the world. It's not going to be just by standing up and saying, here's what God says. It's going to be by walking around and showing what God says to elders. Later, we will get to this in 1 Peter 5, the first three verses. Peter writes, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that should be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, notice, but being in samples to the flock. Don't just teach it, live it. By living it, you're teaching it, and powerfully so. You're giving people a mark to follow you're showing them a model, a pattern, and that's that's what ensamples mean. You're giving them a form, a pattern to follow after. So you can say this is what God says, and then you ought to show it. Now, in this marital situation that we're talking about in 1 Peter 3, uh, right now, verses 1 through 6, think about this in this marriage. The wife has this challenge. The Bible gives bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to fathers. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. However, if a woman is married to a non-Christian man, she's not going to just surrender her children to the devil and say, well, that's his job, and he's not going to fit, be fit for it. No. What loving mother would allow their children to go to hell and not fight for them? So if the father's not a believer, women, you're going to have to cultivate a way to bring up your children and nurture your admonition of the Lord while staying in your role. In Acts 16, 1 and 2, Paul comes to Derby and Lystra, and there's a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess that believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. So here is a believing uh, uh, woman who is the mother of the evangelist Timothy or Timotheus, as it is written there. Well, what do we find out later about her? In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and also thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that is thee also. And then later in that epistle, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise in salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood, Timothy knew the scriptures. It wasn't his father's doing. It was his mother and grandmother's doing. That's a great example. That is what a woman can do. It's unfortunately not her role. But here you see it by example and how it is to be conducted. Wives, hey, and us men as fathers, we need to ask ourselves, what sermon are we preaching to our children? Because it matters. In Numbers 32, 13, and 14, 
The Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years till all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. And behold, you are risen up in your father's stead, an increase of sinful men, to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord toward Israel. Look at society. One generation is bad, the next generation is worse, the next generation is worse, because evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. If you're not a good example to your children, and they learn disobedience from you, that is going to be passed on, and in so many ways. Just think about one of the applications that fits this context. Think about the Christian woman who refuses to submit to her husband What's she teaching her sons and daughters? Role reversal. And then if she excuses it, come on. I, I knew a mouthy woman and, oh, just unfortunate. It's just so unfortunate. It's terrible. Just saying that, a mouthy woman. I'm starting to hear all these phrases that I've heard in the past. I knew a mouthy woman and her children did not do not and will not obey the gospel because of what they saw in their mother. Do you think that's going to be excused in the judgment day? Do you think so? And I've known multiple women over the years that have had this problem. Maybe one of their children obeyed the gospel because dad was a, a Christian and, and he taught them, or maybe because they're just following tradition like a lot of people religiously do. But then when you look at their conduct, you know, they're like their mother. Their marriage, mouthy, rebellious. I'll tell you. Think of a, a woman one time, her daughter was mouthing back to her. And she said, girl, you better mind me. Who you, who you think you're talking to? And I thought, who does she think she's talking to? Where is she learning that conduct. I don't know what goes on in people's houses, but I know this. You ladies, if you teach your daughters to be mouthy, they're going to be mouthy. They're going to talk back. They're not going to mind those that are in authority. They're going to step beyond their rule. You got to think about that. We live in a society that says, raise up strong women. Let those women be world leaders you know what they're not finishing that sentence with? Who are going to go straight to hell because they're going to usurp authority over the man over and over and over because you raised them that way. What do they see in your conduct? I want my daughter to be independent. Okay. What are you teaching them in that? And fathers do that too. You know, the context that we're talking about right now is dressed to the wise, but I've known plenty of men that want their daughters to be strong-minded, to be self-sufficient. Some, some men have said, I don't want my, my daughters to have to depend on a man. man. You need to pick your Bible up and read a little bit more. And I get it. I've got a daughter, and I'm thankful that she is mentally retarded because I'm so glad I don't have to go through her having to find a man in this present world. Whew. I already see how difficult it is for my boys. I don't want that to happen for my girl. Listen, let me get back on page here. 
You've got to conduct yourself so that your children see a good sermon. Think about the children of Israel, not just in the Old Testament, but how the conduct of their forefathers continued to the days of Jesus and even beyond. In Acts 7.51, when they were about to stone Stephen to death, he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Yes, it gets passed on. Sin doesn't, Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. But we teach our children in word and deed, that is, by what we say and what we do, how to conduct themselves. And they end up being like their parents, and a lot of times, worse than their parents. Think about the warnings. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. You, you teach your children, don't follow the world, don't follow the world. So they follow you and you're worse than the world because hypocrisy is worse than the world. When a child sees mom and or dad say and do not, they learn hypocrisy. They learn to be dishonest right then and there by actions. Think on that, folks, both male and female. We need to be wise in how we conduct ourselves. Now, back to the point of, uh, that we're talking about, the Christian woman married to a non-Christian man. Think about general instructions, like Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. I knew a woman, oh, how many years ago was this? I was preaching in Pennsylvania at the time, so 24 plus years ago, uh, somewhere in that range. Uh, this woman was married to a non-Christian man. He was a nice fellow. Uh, they were a wealthy couple, and this woman, over time, you know, learned that she'd go home and she'd complain to her husband about what she didn't like about the sermon or what she didn't like about the church. And it wasn't just while I was there, um, as I talked to her husband, his name was Lester, uh, one time, he he told me pretty plainly and pretty directly uh, that he thought the Lord's church was a joke. He didn't use those words. And he says the stuff that his wife has told him over the years, he'd never want to be part of it. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so she goes home and complains to her non-Christian husband. And, and I mean, I know what she was. We ended up having to, to withdraw ourselves from her. She was a hypocrite. Well, he saw all of that. You know what she did? She caused herself and her husband to be lost because she didn't conduct herself wisely among those that are without. She opened her mouth. Instead of it being with grace, seasoned with salt, she didn't consider how she ought to talk in front of her unbelieving spouse. Here's what could have happened, and I wish it would have happened, and I tried to make it happen. Had Lester been able to be converted to Christ, he may have been able to correct his wife, put her in place, and bring her to the Lord so that they both could have been saved. Certainly was my effort, but her conduct stood in the way. You wives, listen to that. Conduct matters. 
If the spouse won't be one because of the word of God, let it be your conduct. Think about Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. To be blameless and harmless, unrebukable out there in the world, even if that is within the walls of your physical home. Remember the example of Jesus, that context, right? First Peter 2, 21, here until you recall, because Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not conduct himself in a way that the world didn't see the truth. He walked it and talked it. Be like Jesus. Our text goes on that if they won't be won by the word, the conversation of wise, while they behold, so they're looking at your chaste conversation coupled with fear. The word chaste means pure or modest. Well, that applies to all Christians, right? 1 John 3, 1 through 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purify himself, even as he is pure. Living a pure, modest conversation, putting that on display. I want to remind you what Titus 2.5 said, and we read it earlier, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husband, the word of God be not blasphemed. Your conduct can cause people to speak evil of God's word. It is reflection on the truth and your conduct can blind people from seeing the truth. To be pure, to be holy. I want, Think back in applications here, right? Uh, if a mother comes home from the assembly on the first day of the week and she brings her children home. Hopefully she's bringing them to the assembly. She brings her children home. And what the children just heard the preacher preach, they're not seeing mom do. They're seeing the opposite. Mom sits down and makes dinner and dad grabs the bottle of wine out of, out of the cupboard and no surprise is non-Christian but he pours two glasses and mom takes and drinks some of it. But the children just heard a sermon on be sober, 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, and about the effects of alcohol on the mind and all the other things the Bible teaches about alcohol. <clears throat> and the child's sitting there and the child's thinking, huh, that's different than what the preacher preached. So what do they learn? They learn, go on the first day of the week, hear one thing and do another. I remember being a teenager, my stepmother, she would come home, she would uh, put her Bible on the table in the dining room, we ate normally in the kitchen, and that Bible sat there Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and the next time it moved was Wednesday. But I heard the preacher, her husband, say from the pulpit over and over again, you need to be studying the Word of God daily. You need to be studying the Word of God daily. 
I heard as a child, well, teenager, because I didn't grow up in this home, but lived there from almost to the point where I turned 15 uh, and a little bit forward, uh, I heard the commandment from my father, you got to study, you've got to study, you've got to do this. But I saw the opposite in both of them, really, the opposite. And how in the world do you expect a child to conduct themselves right when they hear one thing and see another? If you're telling me Bible study is so important to the salvation of my soul, but you're showing me the opposite, what I'm really hearing is that you want me to do something that you don't value. That you're using words for whatever reason I don't understand because your conduct shows otherwise. So you're, you're a liar or you're just trying to make me do something you yourself don't want to do. Kind of like when you're forced to go out and cut the grass because your dad doesn't want to do it, right? So then you start viewing scriptural obedience to a chore that somebody else wants you to do that they won't do themselves. What are they hearing? Hey, you know, I remember a congregation I was in uh, my second year of, of, of being a Christian and the Sunday morning attendance was this, the Sunday night was lower, the Wednesday night was even lower. And you wonder what happened to the next generation of those children? You know, do you really have to wonder? They're weak sauce. You know why? Because they did not see pure, modest behavior in their mother or father. And in that congregation, there were more women than there were men. And those women, yeah, that they did some stuff. And there were multiple divisions to follow thereafter. And the children followed in those patterns. Why? The Bible tells us why. Looking around tells us why. You, if, you, if you close the Bible and you go into the public school system, and you begin to hear the way children talk to adults, not with respect. Talk to teachers, not with respect. You know, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1, rebuke not an elder and treat him as a father, the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. You don't see that. Why? Because children haven't seen that at home in multiple generations. We're not in 1950s America anymore. Respect isn't taught or practice. Why are children breaking into stores and running away with things? Because they don't respect people or property. Where'd this happen? It happened at home. What's going to happen to the next generation? Wax worse. You don't have to be a prophet. So you ladies out there, you want your husbands, your children to get to heaven? Conduct yourself purely. Modestly, backing up to what we learned in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, it applies to every Christian. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the graces to be brought unto you of the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it's written, be holy I'm holy. So that's not just in the assembly among the saints. That's everywhere and always. Right? 
What's it mean, your chase conversation coupled with fear? Well, the context is use this with servants. 1 Peter 2, 17 through 18, do you remember? Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only the good and gentle, but also the forward. So this is just back to that point of likewise. In 1 Peter 3, 1, if a Christian woman disobeys her husband, again, like I mentioned earlier, the qualifier, Acts 5, 29, Peter and the apostles answered the counsel, we ought to obey God rather than men. That With that qualifier in mind, God says, ye wise, be in subjection, meaning under obedience, to be subject to, to submit yourself to your husbands. If you disobey that, fear number one, because you're disobeying God. What happens with that? 2 Thessalonians 1.8, and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So if we disobey our Lord's will on this or any matter, there's hell to pay for it. That is one reason to fear. But it's not only for that reason. If you were to go back to a context we were in earlier in Ephesians 5, verse 33, it is written, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That word that is translated reverence, fabiho, means to frighten, to be alarmed, to be in awe of, to revere, to fear exceedingly. This goes back to the beginning. Like it or not, this is the lot you have in life as a woman. You were created as a helpmeet for your husband. I know people want to buck that. I know that there are ladies that don't like to hear that. You can take that up with God. If I were born female, this would be my lot in life. So I'm not saying this is a man with preference. I'm not saying that this allows men to act like the typical caveman uh, mentality. But Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. So God caused a deep sleep on Adam, took one of his ribs, closed up his flesh instead thereof. And from that rib, he made woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam called her woman because she is taken out of man. And there the marriage relationship began and so forth. That is creation. We don't even have to go to Genesis 3. I understand that in Genesis 3, when Eve partook first and gave to her, her husband, that she was put into subjection to her husband. I get that too. And yes, that further proves the point. But like we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, and as we see there in Genesis chapter 2, woman was made for the man. So wives, fulfill your role. And in heaven, it's not going to matter. Do your work here. And, and again, let me take this to point. I don't like our civil government. Not one bit. Regardless of whether there's a D or an R or an I in front of their names, 
I don't trust a single politician in America. I don't vouch for them. I don't think they're good. They're people of the world. They are liars. You're not going to hear me support a campaign. Okay? But as much as I don't like their decision-making, I profoundly hate what they do with the taxes that I pay. God tells me to submit myself to them, and therefore I do. I want to get to heaven. If that means by watching my tax money be wasted, your tax money be wasted, then that's what it means. I don't agree with those decisions. I'm going to obey those decisions. Wives, you might not like what your husband doing. Put your head down and take it. That's the truth. We're going to pick up next week in verse 3. So I want you to keep this in your mind because we're going to go through verse 6. Who's adorning and let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel. We're going to focus on not the outward woman. The text goes on, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. So he's going to repeat the point. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So we're going to talk about that next week. It's a very clear context. All of us need to learn from it because it's a continuation of 1 Peter chapter 2, 12 and following and put it into practice in our lives if you are not already. If you want to get to heaven, you cannot choose what part of God's word you want to obey and what parts you do not. It is not a la carte. You can't pick and choose. I'll leave it to you with that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll come back on Tuesday. If all goes according to plan, I'll have another podcast up then. Until then, I will say goodbye.